Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today is an award-winning author who has penned a new mystery series, The Mona Moon Mysteries, a rags-to-riches 1930 series which includes real people and events into the storyline. She also writes the Joshua Reynolds mystery series about a southern beekeeper turned amateur female sleuth. Besides loving history, Kentucky bourbon and chocolate. She loves honeybees and for many years made her living by selling honey at a farmer's market. She currently lives on the Kentucky River in a metal house with her husband and various critters. She still has honeybees. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Abigail Keem. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. Abigail, our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, so what took you so long to write your first book? Well, I had written ever since um, I was in college. I just couldn't get my foot in the door. One thing they don't tell you when you're young that sometimes luck has something to do with um, opportunities. And I wrote my first series, which was a fantasy series in the 90s. And I, it was centered around female. And at that time, uh, fantasy was very male-oriented. And I just couldn't get anybody interested in it. And I just kept writing. And then I kept dreaming about this woman um, that seemed to want to be born. And she was middle-aged, and she was sarcastic, and she was rude, but she was funny. And I started writing a series about her. Now, when I write about Josiah Reynolds, I don't use a plot. I don't. I go wherever the characters take me. And sometimes I don't even know who the murderer is until the end of the book. And she just wanted to be born. And I had been very successful with that series and only because I published myself. And I was 55 at that time. And uh, we have a wonderful literary center here called the Carnegie Center. And they had a writer in residence. And I took my manuscript to him. And I told my husband, I said, if he tells me this is worthless, I said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to struggle with this anymore. Um, I took it to him and uh, Neil Chethick, and I said, this is a mystery I've written. And I could see his eyes roll back in his head. Oh, another middle-aged woman writing a mystery. He says, I'll take a look at it and I'll get get in touch with you when I've finished with it. 
Two weeks later, he called me up. He goes, come in. I want to see you. So I walked in and I sat down and pulled out a book. He goes, let's start looking for agents. And, um, and we started flying. And the problem was I had got agents, but they couldn't sell the series. They couldn't sell it because they wanted young protagonists and mysteries. They did not want middle-aged protagonists. And I said, you mean nobody reads Miss Marple anymore? Nobody watches Murder, She Wrote? And they said, no, we want young. So he said, just publish it yourself. So now I'm writing my 18th series because there are apparently a lot of women um, in the series of my 18th book. There are a lot of women that apparently want to read about our age group who uh, overcome adversity. And I, I try to make them live, but they talk about very serious issues. Uh, one is that she is handicapped. She fell and has to wear a hearing aid and she limps. And, uh, but that only endears her to people because I have so many uh, readers that write into me, like, I read your book to my mother while she was in hospice. Oh. I had cancer and I read your book and Josiah gives me um, courage to go on. So um, I really like this series and I like that she's not so nice. Well, they're very popular, and you must be churning them out in your sleep. You're so prolific. Tell us about your writing routine. How do you write so quickly? Well, I usually get up around 4 o'clock. I just wake up, and it's all quiet, and the animals are sleeping, and that gives me some downtown. I consider myself a very slow writer. I only write around 2,000 words a day. And... um and sometimes I don't write at all because I have to think, where am I going? Since I don't plot it out, uh, I don't do outlines, I have to think about where I'm going next with these characters, or I wait for them in my dreams. And I write very organically. Uh, it's what you call a pantser. I'm a pantser. Well, I think 2,000 words a day is extremely fast because oh. when, when I wrote NaNoWriMo, for the month of November and had to write 1,667 words a day. It was all I could do to get that many words on paper. So I think you're a very fast writer. Well, I know authors that can do 10,000 words in one sitting. I don't know how they do it. I, I just, it just boggles my mind, but I admire them. But I can't do it. I, I know that I cannot do that. That's unbelievable to me. It's so intriguing for me to be able to delve into the mind of a mystery writer. I want to to know how all the building blocks fit together to resolve your mystery and, and how you leave a trail of clues throughout. Well, it's a mystery to me, too. <laughs> Since I don't do an outline and uh, we have to go back through the book and make sure that all the clues line up and for some reason, they just do. They do line up. And, um, yeah, and I try not to um, have it obvious who the murderer But uh, Josiah always gets her man. And sometimes she's very sympathetic to the murderer because, as Josiah puts it, some people just need killing. <laughs> Did real people inspire any of your characters? Oh, yes. Um, 
Josiah was like, uh, is like me. Uh, she is a beekeeper. She makes her living by selling honey at a farmer's market. So many of the characters of the farmer's market are actually people that I knew. I, I changed the name, of course, but their personalities are pretty close. But nobody seems to recognize themselves, which is, I feel good. There's never anything better than a farmer's market. I was the director of the first uh, locally producers only farmers market in Mississippi. And I, I really love farmers and those who produce uh, from the, from the earth. Uh, it's very hard work. Nobody realizes unless you're a farmer, it's very, very hard work. Being a key, beekeeper is very hard work. And um, I've gotten to the point, I'm 67 now. I published Josiah when I was 55. I can't lift uh, those bottom high bottoms are sometimes a hundred pounds. Wow. So I can't lift them by myself anymore. When I was younger, I could, but I can't do that anymore. So mm -hmm. I have to have help, but that's why I stopped selling honey commercially um, because I just couldn't do the labor. It was just too labor intensive for me anymore. They don't make uh, beekeeping equipment that's very female friendly. Well, and I'm so worried about the future of bees in our world. Well, Kentucky has a great uh, bee uh, program. We have a bee inspector and we have all these bee clubs. Uh, and they mentor young beekeepers and they're trying to get young people uh, interested in keeping a couple highs. Uh -huh. We don't have that many commercial beekeepers here, but across the entire state, we have people, hobbyists that have maybe one to 10 highs, and that just keeps things going. It's a great program. That sounds great. And a lot of states need to, to look to, to Kentucky then for inspiration. Yes, we have a wonderful beekeeping uh, culture here. We really do. Abigail, tell us more about your editing process. If you don't know when you're writing what it's going to be like, how do you edit? Do you edit as you go along? Do you wait till the end and just make sure all those clues line up? I leave that to other people. I am a terrible proofreader. Uh, I don't see my own mistakes uh, I hand that off to an editor, and then I uh, give it after she's finished with it. I give it to my beta readers. Uh, they catch things the editor didn't, and uh, then it goes to my husband, who gives it one last, uh, last reading to go over, and he also double-checks the um, historical information, make sure that is all correct. I never read it again. I'm off, I'm off to the next book. Oh, I was going to ask, how often do you turn out these books to keep your fans satisfied? Well, I have to do about four books a year, and it takes me about three months to do a book. By the time I write it, it's edited, and we get it up, it's uh, three to four months. That is so fast. I think you're the fastest writer and um, getting books published I have ever uh, spoken to. <laughs> oh, really? I consider myself very slow. Oh, no. I know other mystery writers that get a book out every six weeks. I don't, oh. I don't know how they do it. I really don't know how they do it. But uh, I consider myself a slow writer. 
and uh, and the Mona Moon stories. I love history, and, and Josiah Reynolds. I write a lot about Kentucky history. Um, I think I'm a frustrated teacher. And uh, Mona Moon, I wanted to write about the 30s. When you write about historical mysteries, most people write about the 20s. That's a very popular era uh, for mystery writers. But to me, the 20s was dull because everybody was in France writing and drinking themselves into oblivion. The 30s is where all the action was. That's where women who had just had the vote for 10 years in 1930 uh, were now protesting for better wages. There were uh, labor unrest, uh, political unrest. People were concerned what was going on in Europe. Um, so there was a lot of stuff going on in the thirties and I bring all that and all those people into my storylines. And at the end of the book, I have an addendum, which explains more information about them. Like in my new book that's coming out on November the 14th, Murder Under a Bridal Moon, um, I have Aloha Wonderwell. She was a very famous explorer in the 1930s, and she was on par with Amelia Earhart. She was very, very popular. And I write uh, George O'Keefe drops in. I like uh, to talk about Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, Alice Roosevelt, because she's known for saying very pithy things. And Mabel Dodge, who was a big uh, art um, uh, supporter. And I like to bring people like that and mix them in with a storyline. So it's fun to learn about all these women because I write about women for women. I do not write for men. Now, if men want to read the stories, that's great. That's wonderful. And I encourage them to do so. But my main audience is women and supporting women and telling women about these fabulous creatures um, that were before us. And I, I did not know who Aloha Wonderwell was. Who is Aloha Wonderwell? And when I learned about it, I said, how can we not know about this woman? So I enjoy writing about these characters. And I enjoy Mona Moon. She's so different uh, from Josiah. She's um, extremely well-educated. Uh, she's a cartographer. And I talk a lot about in the earlier books, her hero was uh, uh, Gertrude Bell, who uh, did the borders for, uh, she was British, she did the borders for Iran and Iraq. And she started the Iraqi Museum, Art Museum. And um, I got an email from her family in England who said that I had posted pictures of their uh, aunt, their great aunt, that they had never seen before. I had posted pictures with her with T.E. Lawrence. And they said they had never seen those pictures before. And I was like, oh, I was, and they were thrilled that she was in a book because they said nobody knows who Gertrude uh, Bell is anymore. But she, she was another fabulous person. So I like writing about these women. Well, how do you determine when it's time to begin a new series or when it's time to conclude another series? I get an itch. It just, it's a feeling. I just get an itch. Um, it takes me, uh, when the new book comes out, it takes me about two to three weeks to do the promotion for it, contacting everybody to promote it. And then after that, I start getting really antsy. Like, I want to get back to writing. I, you know, a lot of my time is taken up with marketing since I'm an indie writer. Um, and I really just want to write. 
I just want to write. But my husband's thinking about retiring and I want him to take over these duties for me. So that will give me, maybe I can put out six books a year. I don't know. <laughs> so we'll see. Well, I hope he'll be a great assistant to you. I want to know what challenges you've found in publicity because you, like most of the writers I talk to, would rather be writing than promoting themselves. Have you found any publicity that really works for you? Um, hmm. Well, it changes every six months. You constantly have to be on top of it. Now TikTok's the big thing. So I'm expanding into TikTok. But by the time you do Facebook, Instagram, um, Pinterest, it, it just it drains me of energy. But you have to do it in order to stay relevant. And how does a person who's 67 years old stay relevant when most of the writers are 40 and below? How do I stay relevant? I, I, I have to stay on top of my game. And how do I get younger readers? Uh, well, you're going to have to go to things like TikTok in order to get them. So, um, yeah, that's an issue with most writers of any age. How do you stay relevant? Well, I can tell you that you are relevant and I have have just loved interviewing authors over 50 because the wisdom that we have and the hindsight that we have, the young people don't have that. It's going to take them a long time to get to the same position where we are. That is true. That is true. And um, I don't, in my mysteries, I don't make things black and white. You know, um, some of these issues that I write about, um, there are varied shades of gray. And with age, we know that. When you're young, everything's black and white. When you get older, there are nuances with issues. So I try to write about that. And I, and I don't want to hit people over the head. I, I, I want Josiah and Mona to be funny. Um, I want it to be lighthearted, although I talk about very serious issues, uh, such in Lexington, historic racism. Um, I talk about that. And um, I, I, I have a, a character, Shanika Mary Todd. And she is an African-American who's uh, Josiah's criminal lawyer because Josiah is always getting in trouble with the police because she oversteps her bounds in uh, investigating. And uh, through her, uh, because Shanika Mary Todd is uh, an amateur historian, besides being a criminal lawyer, my favorite scene is when Josiah first goes to her office, which overlooks the old um, slave market on Cheapside of Lexington. And uh, she notices a letter from Abraham Lincoln uh, to his brother-in-law, Mary Todd's brother, and uh, slave shackles and um, all sorts of Civil War memorabilia. She goes, oh, I didn't know that you were um, a Civil War collector. And Shanika says, no, these are family heirlooms because her name's Mary Todd, Shanika Mary Todd. So I like to, it, it's a very complicated issue. And uh, historically, we are trying to address it in Lexington. And Cheapside has, uh, we're trying to make it a more positive use of the space. But I, I like to do things like that. 
And I like to make a Shanika Mary Todd a spokesman for the history of Lexington. So she's one of my favorite characters. But I have a lot of quirky favorite characters that I deal with. How do you come up with all the methods of killing all these people off? And does it matter as much how you kill them as just the, the clues that are going to be uh, discovered afterwards? Well, I am running out of ways to dispatch people. Uh, sometimes my husband and I would go out to dinner and we're talking about, okay, how are we going to kill this character? And you know how you listen to other people's conversation? Well, you hear people starting to look at us and you can be like they're murmuring to each other. And you know, they're trying to decide whether they should call the police on us. And I have to turn around and say, no, it's a character. It's not a real person. But um I look to what's going on in the world and I use, uh, and I love historical methods. Uh, I, you know, I'm a student of that, um, old murder cases. And um, I use poison a lot. I think Agatha, Agatha Christie used poison a lot, but I have a book of poisons. I have a book of knives. You know, it just goes on and on. But I don't dwell too much on that. I mean, I just dispatch the person. And then I talk about other things in the book. I talk about Josiah going. Uh, I, I do a lot of beekeeping information in the books. And I talk about her working with her bees. And I talk about her animals. She has a 200-pound English Mastiff that uh, is her best buddy uh, because I had an English Mastiff and it was like having a pony in the house and I know exactly how they behave. They do behave a little bit differently and um, I just write about it. people, you know, will email me and said, uh, we want more of the dog. We want more of the dog. And so I, it's not all about just death and murder. It's really um, an adventure into this woman's life what she does, what she thinks, and her farming and her love of honeybees. Well, tell us a little bit about the book that you've brought to share with us today and read from it so that we can hear your tone and voice in the book. Okay. Um, the book I selected is Death by Haunting. This is the seventh book in the uh, Josiah Reynolds mystery. And this is all about famous robberies. Uh, we had an extremely famous robbery here in the 70s with the Hughley Whitney uh, Museum. Somebody came and stole all of uh, this uh, jewelry. Uh, Mr. Hughley used to be a jeweler uh, for the Beverly Hills, and he moved here a uh, horse farm um, in Lexington. And anyway, this is the opening of the book. I I really like this opening because uh, the book is supposed to be a little bit spooky. But anyway, this is the prologue. Mr. Bailey, who lived up Tate's Creek Road from Josiah Reynolds, was awakened in the wee hours of the night to find his covers had been pulled off. His growling Jack Russell Terrier and clinging orange tabby were lying so close to him as to be almost pushing Mr. Bailey off his new mattress. What the muttered Mr. Bailey as he turned to push the cat away and questioned his wife of 47 years. Mavis, what's going on? asked Mr. Bailey as he turned on his side to find his missus wide awake and sitting straight up against the headboard of the new poster bed, staring into a darkened corner of the bedroom. Mavis pointed towards the corner and croaked, Mama's here. 
Mr. Bailey followed his wife's outstretched hand pointing to a dark corner where indeed stood his mother-in-law, Cordelia Sharp, wearing her favorite blue seersucker summer dress with a lavender wig. The only problem was Cordelia Sharp had been dead for seven years. Wow, that's a great beginning. I Yeah, that's one of my favorite <laughs> beginnings. And we follow Mr. Bailey, and he had been involved in a famous um, jewel heist, and we follow him, and we Josiah, and it turns into um, finding Nazi art that had been or art that had been stolen by the Nazis. It, it just evolves about a lot of art, and I love art. And um, Josiah solves the riddle. So I really enjoyed that. And then um, this is the first book of my series. It was only supposed to be three, three of these books. And now we're on number 10. Oh. I'm just going to read you the blurb on the back. And so you get an idea of what this book is about. Mona Moon is not your typical young lady in the 1930s. Excuse me, cartographer by trade, an intrepid explorer by nature, and an ardent adventurer by heart. But there's a problem. Mona Moon is broke. It is during the Depression, and her application to join an expedition to the wilds of the Amazon has just been turned down. What's she to do? Perhaps get a job as a department store sales girl? Anything to tide her over until the next assignment. There's a knock on the door. Who could this be in the middle of the night? Mona doubts it would be a friend. Holding a revolver, Mona reluctantly opens her door to a man wearing a homebird hat and clutching a briefcase. I bring brave tidings. Your uncle Manfred Moon has died and left you as an heir to the Moon fortune. You are now one of the richest women in the country, he says. Mona's response is to point her revolver in his face. If the stranger is telling the truth, she will apologize. If he is a fraud, she will shoot him. This is how the lovely Madeline Mona Moon does things in 1933. So I like to give women power in my stories. And uh, Josiah hates guns, but Mona Moon loves them. So oh. <laughs> they approach danger in their own different ways. So um, I, I think people enjoy them. I bet they do. Those sound wonderful. What do you think is the best money you've ever spent as a writer? Oh, that's a very good question. The best money I've ever spent. <clears throat> well, I would have to say my education. Um, it's, I think it's hard to be a writer if you don't have a, a sterling education. And my parents, uh, my father never finished high school, and but both my parents believed in the American right to have an education, and I was pushed to go to college. But during um, grade school through high school, if I didn't come home and make the grades, I got in a lot of trouble, and that's when they did whippings, <laughs> whoopings. That's what they call whoopings. And they wanted to know why I got a C and certain, you know, and I better bring it up. Uh, a lot of pressure was put on me because uh, because they grew up during the Depression and they didn't always have the opportunities. And they said, you're not going to mess up this opportunity. And they did everything, everything they could to sacrifice to send me to college. I think that was the best money invested in me. As for um, being older, um, the best money spent, well, it had to be advertising. 
It, and book covers, book covers, yes. People who, there are so many writers out there, and you're up against so many competition and good writers, that if you don't spend a lot of money on your covers, there's just no point in writing because you do judge a book by its cover. You do judge a book by its cover. And as you see behind me are all my series and they're very colorful and bright. And I use bright colors to attract women. Um, I don't write thrillers because you know thrillers are darker colors, navies, blacks, browns. Um, but the kind that I write, we use very colorful colors to attract readers. And if you write a cozy, if you don't put a dog on the cover, you're not going to sell your book. That's one thing about writing cozies. Either put a cat or a dog. <laughs> That's very true. And I do love covers. I think they're really pieces of art and they really promote us very well. Um, I use uh, for my um, um, Josiah series, uh, I saw posters around town and I contacted, I really liked them. And I contacted the people that did the posters. I said, do you ever do a book cover? And they said, no. I said, well, would you like to try? And they said, well, we'll give it a shot. And now they do book covers for a lot of authors. So, and um, I just tell them what I want and they come up with a concept. For my um, uh, fantasy series, um, I had, that's a different type of art. And I contacted, I looked on the internet and contacted a woman that, that just did fantasy on her spare time, fantasy art. And um, while I was talking to her, I noticed her English was a little off. And I said, where are you? And she goes, I'm in Sweden. And I said, oh, okay, second language. And I said, isn't this funny that the internet can now bring people from all over the world? Anyway, she did uh, these wonderful co co uh, covers for my fantasy series. So I had different artists that do the different series because the art is different. Well, I love that. And of course, I only have two books, but they've been done by the same graphic artist she was in san francisco and now she's in portugal so it is great that we can stay in touch over the internet and and nothing uh is dropped <laughs> yeah it's it's amazing there's just talent all over the world i do want to talk about one thing and that is um negative reviews on amazon one thing i tell people when i give talks to everything with these young writers, don't leave negative reviews. The worst thing you can do to a writer is take away their confidence. And people develop their skills. Like Hemingway was not Hemingway, always Hemingway. He was a newspaper reporter first, and then he learned to be a novelist. So give young writers a little bit of break. If you can't say anything nice about the work, unless it's absolutely dreadful, um, just just don't leave these negative reviews. And I'd like to put that out there. Well, I certainly agree because I can can scroll down and have five star reviews. I don't leave anything less than four star ever. Or I just won't review anything. And I think that is so crucial to know because I think there's some people out there who are just seeing that 
that there are some good reviews here. I think I'll leave a one star because they have no reason whatsoever. Some will say that I haven't even read the book, but I just didn't like the way it felt in my hands or something, you know, crazy. And I, I don't understand why anybody would do such a thing. Yeah, there's a lot of negativity out there. I got a one one star saying, I just love this book. And she gave me a one star. <laughs> Maybe she didn't understand the rating system. I held out. It's like, really? You love the book and you did leave me one star? Well, you know, that messes up the algorithm. So sure. Ab absolutely. And we live by those. Oh, we sure do. We sure do. Well, Abigail, always our last review interview question is our writers over 50 are a unique set. Do you have any advice for writers 50 and above? Write a series. Um, you'll make more money that way. Keep your day job until you're established and just keep on evolving and learning and Write something that is, it could be a murder mystery, but still have a positive, like Jessica Fletcher and Murder, She Wrote. Um, just, just keep on with your dream. I mean, I waited until I was 55 until the technology changed until I was able to publish my own work. And I, man, I have not regretted that decision. It's been very lucrative for me. So keep on, keep on trucking. Well, I think that's great advice. And coming from you, that is certainly very worthwhile because you have turned out those mysteries and have such a fan base. So we can all look to you for inspiration. And we're happy to say that you're now one of our authors over 50. I'm so glad to be one of you. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.